0: Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Matt Reynolds, a legal affairs writer with the ABA Journal in Chicago. Today, it's my pleasure to be joined by novelist and lawyer Heather Srail, who writes under the name Marie Benedict to talk about her novel, The Mitford Affair. Hi, Heather. How are you doing today?
1: Wonderful. So happy to be talking with
0: you. Yeah, me too. So your book, it tells the story of the Mitford sisters during the rise of Nazi Germany in the 30s and
1: 40s. Could you just tell us a
0: little bit about the three sisters who feature in the book?
1: Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, there are volumes about the sisters, but they were the three aristocratic it girls of the 1920s and 30s, British, each one more beautiful, brilliant, and eccentric than the next. And the story really focuses on the way in which three of the six sisters became caught in the crosshairs of World War II and really played an unexpected role in ultimately what happened in the war and the way in which it unfolds has a lot of modern day resonance as well.
0: And I should ask you like about the Mitford sisters, like um, I actually got to admit when I read this, this, I, I hadn't really heard that much about them, but I was just like wondering what drew you to this story and what drew you to this family?
1: Yeah, sure. So you know, I am a writer on a mission. I write about um, unknown or lesser known historical women who have left a really important legacy for us, and who have who who have dealt with issues that really resonate into modern day. So I kind of have developed an antenna over time for these women because finding them and shining the light on them is really is really my goal. So I find them everywhere. I find them in research I'm doing, newspaper articles, conversations with friends. And I happened to be researching a another book that I wrote about Winston Churchill's wife. It's called Lady Clementine. And I had known of the Mitford sisters. I had read some of their uh, Nancy Mitford's books when I was in college, which was kind of a glimpse their fiction, but really autobiographical, and a glimpse into this really unusual sisterly relationship in the rarefied world that they inhabit. So they'd been on my radar a little bit. But when I researched this book about Clementine Churchill. The Midford sisters figured in my research because they were cousins. They were much more than cousins, and we can talk about that, but they were at minimum cousins. And the way in which these two families really epitomized the the polarizing political influences of the rise of World War II and that interwar period was unbelievable to me and just so captivating that I really felt compelled to uncover the way in which these family members each became drawn to and in some cases obsessed with, in turn, fascism, communism, socialism, I mean, you name it. And the way in which that that could have, and in some ways did, play out in all of our histories. When I started to learn more about what happened, what they did, I I just felt absolutely compelled to write the story.
0: You mentioned that family connection, like Winston Churchill features in the book, doesn't he? I don't know if there's a spoiler to say that. that he, it's not a spoiler.
1: <laughs> yeah, so yeah, he does. He's a character and and he w- was in real life a character. You know, my books are very much wedded um, and mired in the research. The Midford sisters, there were six of them, their father was ostensibly the cousin, first cousin to Clementine Churchill. Their mothers were sisters. But the reality is they were probably also half siblings it is very likely that clementine's father was her aunt's husband so it's very complicated and and actually much closer than than the phrase cousin just in and of itself would suggest
0: and i shall ask you like writing about these larger than life historical figures like hitler and winston churchill i mean obviously they've been immortalized in books on tv and films is it, that kind of daunting having to um, explore the, these characters we've seen so many times in fiction before and in, in nonfiction as well?
1: Absolutely. I mean, in some cases, it, it deters me from writing the story. In this case in particular, I mean, I've written about as secondary characters, because, you know, my, first, my primary character is always the woman, Albert Einstein, you know, Winston Churchill, and Hitler. I mean, what a trio. But yeah, I mean, in this case in particular, I almost, it took me a long time to kind of muster up the courage to write the story because two of the sisters become become part of Hitler's inner circle. They become... That's
0: unity and...
1: Unity um, and Diana. I yeah. mean, they're absolutely enmeshed with him. And so I had to look at the most reprehensible character in history through the positive lens of these two characters in order to understand how they became so enraptured by him and his movement. And that was very, very challenging. The only way I could do it, and even then it still turned my stomach, was to rely on their letters recounting those those relationships. So yeah, it's very daunting.
0: I wanted to ask you about the structure and and how you kind of fell up upon the structure because you you kind of give the three sisters kind of almost equal screen time, don't you, or or, or time in the novel? How, how did you fall upon that? And were there any iterations of the book where you didn't take that approach, or was that kind of an approach you wanted to take from the, the beginning?
1: Well, gosh, that's a great question because there are six sisters and each sister is story is equally mind-boggling. <laughs> and, so, and I just touch on, but could have developed an entire separate storyline about the sister who became a communist, Deka, who I do I do hint at and do talk about, but I could have gotten into much more detail. You know, because I went into the story, as I do with most of my books, with a particular mission, you know, uncovering a legacy and exploring an issue that is one that is kind of inhabiting my own thoughts and um, is very modern in feel. And for me, it was the way in which our world has become so polarizing politically. And I I was very interested in the way in which people develop these very disparate views, particularly within families. And nowhere is that more prevalent than in the Midfords. You know, you've got socialists, Nazis, communists, you know, sort of People who are just following the monarchy—you've got it all—and in and this family dynamic, kind of allowed me to to explore that. And this structure, focusing on the two sisters, who really became instrumental and and could have taken, you know, really rolled Nazism out in Great Britain. Should uh, the Nazis been successful in their in their air campaigns? Was a way to really do that and using Nancy as the one who had to struggle in how far she would go with between her loyalty to her country and her loyalty to her sisters. That also felt really modern to me as well. You know, without taking sides in any political way, it was a way to explore how we evolve at these viewpoints and what we do when we're faced with them and is and asking ourselves whether there's a line. That we you know just is not crossable for us, and so their their particular situation really lent itself to that exploration, which I've been really thinking about a lot myself.
0: And how challenging was right from the perspective of the two sisters that are kind of in cahoots with Nazi Germany and Hitler?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting because they each come to their fascination and adherence to Nazism through very different means, right? Unity is sort of the quintessential middle sister, the least attractive, the least intelligent, the tallest, the most ungainly in this, this sea of strikingly beautiful, famous sisters, right? For her, Nazism and her sort of pursuit of Hitler, she really became— the English person with the closest personal contact and the most time with Adolf Hitler. I mean, she was in his inner circle. She came at it through a void with, I think, a void, and I write fiction, of course. These are my char- my versions of these characters, a void within herself, a way to stand out and claim something for her own. And, and, you know, we're looking at Hitler and Nazism through the benefit of hindsight. You know, there was an echelon of British society that found Nazism and fascism the lesser, of other evils. You know, they, they saw communism coming marching across Europe. And boy, communism wasn't going to let them keep their titles or their land, right? But the fascists, they might, they might let that happen. So she wasn't the only one by a long stretch who found not the rise of Nazism very attractive. So she came by through one means. Diana, when the book opens, is actually married to the heir to the Guinness beer fortune and has two children. She has this luxurious life, and she falls head over heels in love with someone who's not her husband, Oswald Mosley, who is married and is head of the fascist movement in Great Britain. And she hadn't been particularly political before, but when she falls for him, she falls for his movement— also, because it's a way to link her to him, to make herself indispensable in the fascist movement is to make herself indispensable to Oswald Mosley. And so she utilizes these connections that her sister, Unity, has forged with not the Nazis as a way to further her own particular agenda and romantic interests. So they come at it in very different ways. And I wouldn't say that I'm sympathetic, but I'm trying to understand the why. And the how, because I'm trying to understand the why and the how in our world today. One of the things that really was a real, it was a real, that's a theme in Nancy Medford's books and is a realization of my own as well is that political beliefs are often arrived at for very personal reasons. You know, when I was younger and much more naive, I think I used to think that people formed their political allegiances for ideological reasons, you know, because they really believed in X or Y or Z. And that may be true for some people, but for a lot of people, they come at their belief systems through very, for very personal motivations. And understanding that helps me understand the the, very, the variety of political beliefs and the, and the reasons how someone might arrive at that belief system, right? And, and Diana and Unity each are fully brandishing the Nazi flag, yet they each come at that belief system for very different reasons and backgrounds.
0: Okay, well, that seems like a good time to take a break to hear from one of our sponsors. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time.
1: filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple.
0: So I'm here with novelist um, Heather Terrell. Um, Heather, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the surprises in the research. What was it? Did you uncover things that surprised you as you were researching the the sisters and and this family?
1: Many things. I mean, there were many shocking things that I uncovered that I, I really didn't even feel comfortable including in the book. I mean, the behavior that Unity in particular, but also Diana engaged in to further their connection with Hitler and to be part of that circle was shocking sometimes.
0: What were some of the things you uncovered?
1: Well, some of the things that I didn't include are some of the the more scandalous, I don't want to use the word, but the more scandalous behavior that you can find in some other sort of nonfiction depictions of, of that time, particularly on Unity's part. But what I found personally shocking and surprising was the way in which they single-handedly and single-mindedly went after Adolf Hitler. And the way in which, you know, for, just for example, Unity would fi- found out where he was at any given time, and she put herself in his path day after day after day, month after month. She, she knew where he had lunch when he was in Munich. She was there every single day. And that today if that happened with a political figure, that person would be, you know, ousted, right? There would be no, that they would be considered a stalker and that wouldn't happen. But in fact, that is how she became part of his inner circle. And that shocked me, the access, the the persistence, that both of them had an unshakable belief in the force of their own will. And unbelievably, they made their desires come to pass. They each became part of, the the very interpersonal life of adolf hitler in his political ideology in his activities in his social life that was shocking to me it's like and again these these were women who were part of the upper echelon of british society so you know, they were raised to believe in their own infallibility to some extent. Um, and so that, that was a little bit ingrained in them, but even still their audacity was shocking to me. And, and of course, it's shocking the way in which they were able to put blinders on and not acknowledge or re or allow themselves to personally realize the horrors that were going on around them. There was a lot of that those factors were really shocking to me to watch unfold and then to have to depict them from their perspective.
0: Oh, and what about Nancy? Because you mentioned that you read some of her novels before. Um, yeah. The, the the kind of story and the, pl- the line does kind of lend itself to following her as the protagonist. But was, was there anything else that drew you towards it? Were you kind of naturally drawn towards it because she's a novelist too?
1: A little bit. I mean, as a writer... You are always observing the world around you, and and Nancy in particular drew straight from her own world. You know her famous, her most famous novels, which she wrote after um, World War II. So they're not during the time period in this novel. That's Love in a Cold Climate. Those books were a almost like idealized um, depiction of her early years in this eccentric kind of unsupervised household that she grew up in, where the parents really, I mean, they didn't believe in education for the girls. The girls were like a pack of feral cats, warming, you know, worming their way around the countryside. They created their own language. They had their competitions and their conflicts. And so that snapshot was what initially drew me to the Mitfords. They're funny. They're not always kind, but they're very interesting. They're smart and witty. But when I took a look at the books that she wrote, which I did, of course, immerse myself in the books she wrote before and during this time period.
0: Did you read all of her? All
1: of them. What I found was a woman who's trying to open people's eyes through her writing. And, of course, I see, you know, a certain kinship with that because that's what I try to do with my books. You know, Wigs on the Green, which she wrote during this time period, was really an expose from a fictional standpoint of fascism. And and the idiocy of it, really. And I think my guess is that she wanted to open up people's eyes to it, and maybe even her sisters. But, of course, her sisters are indirectly not, not... indirectly and directly depicted as characters in the book. And so is Oswald Mosley. And so that just alienates them from her further. Um, she writes a subsequent novel where she, I think, if you look at what's happening, you know, without giving away too much, the sisters become embroiled in, really, I can't describe it any other way as treasonous activities. I mean, they're basically set, trying to roll out the red carpet for Hitler, should he be successful, in conquering great britain so that there would be a puppet state in place for him when they when he when he conquered. Nancy i think saw the writing on the wall long before she was really willing or able to do anything about it and so she's writing about that. So, you know, that to me was really interesting. I'm, I'm fascinated with the way in which fiction and fact are mirror images of one another and how we can use writing as a way to open people's eyes to muster their sensibilities and their beliefs. And, and I saw Nancy doing that. And of course, I did learn, um, which wasn't known for many decades, even after their death, that Nancy did, in fact, spy on her sisters and for MI5. And she did report on them. And she did play a hand in ultimately, I don't, I don't know if I should say it, but I mean, ultimately, uh, having Diana incarcerated for our activities. You know, she and mostly were, in jail for the entirety of World War II because they were a threat to Great Britain. The fact that she had to make this absolutely monumental decision—a true crisis of conscience—you know, who, where where is my loyalty? Uh, am I really fearful that my sister will do something that could affect the outcome of of the world? And and where is the line? That was fascinating to me too because. In my mind, there were different points in Nancy's journey where I felt like she should have acted maybe earlier. And it, it was interesting to see what would be the tipping point. When would she be in a position where she would finally say enough and and cooperate with the government and, and give them information to, to keep her sister away from any sort of power and any sort of um, ability to influence the outcome of events?
0: And what about artistic license? Like this. This is. This isn't the first time you've written about historical figures, but how how do you yeah. find that balance, and and do you feel like sometimes you do need to have to, have to take liberties with with the facts to to tell the story? How do you approach that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, yeah, as a former lawyer myself, you know, I'm I'm deeply entrenched and sort of schooled in research. Right, that's what we do, especially as a litigator, and that is. So that has stayed with me as I have moved away from the law into writing um, a historical fiction. You know, the way I look at it, for lack of a better example, is this. All the research that I do, which is extensive, you know, it's original source material. So things, letters, journals, things written by my characters in their own hands is kind of wedded with m- broader research, macro and micro things about what's going on in, in, in this particular time period. That all becomes the architecture of my story. You know, it's the foundation, the pillars, the roof. It is the structure upon which the story hangs. But of course, there's fiction. You know, I'm knitting together events. I'm filling in the gray areas that necessarily exist in the pillars, between the pillars, right? And hopefully, stitching together a story that is, yes, fiction, but yes, anchored in the research. And when I'm filling in the blanks or connecting the dots it's not willy-nilly it's really wedded in those decade plus of logical extrapolation that is really the cornerstone of being a lawyer right that extrapolation is necessary to any legal argument or even building of a contract and all of those things come into play in the story yes i do make leaps you know sometimes i have to sometimes we don't know what happened. And I'm filling in the blank with what seems the most logical step for the character, for the time period. So yeah, and that's that's why I write fiction instead of nonfiction. I could write nonfiction about some of these women that I write about. But I feel like especially with women whose histories and stories and documentation and research weren't considered worthy of keeping or sharing until recently, we very often have more gaps than you might with a similarly situated historical man. And so in some ways, it allows us to tell a fuller story. A fuller fictional story, though, I have to say.
0: Okay, well, let's take another break to hear from our sponsors. So I wanted to ask you about your origin story. Um, I usually ask authors um, this same question, about how did this all begin for you? And I, I should, you were a corporate lawyer, weren't you? Um, yeah. Um, in New York, is, is that right?
1: Yeah, I was a commercial litigator in New York City at two of the world's biggest law firms.
0: Which firms? Which uh, firms and
1: Arps, Slate, Mauer and & Flom, and then Morrison and & Forster. And that was for over 10 years before I, uh, I decided to pursue this path. Yeah, so my origin story. Well, I mean, how much time do you really have? <laughs> but it really started uh, for me a long, long time ago. I won't say how many decades, but I was in middle school, and I had this—I was a voracious reader as a kid— and i had this wonderful aunt who was an english professor and a poet and a rebellious nun and she was really the one that gave me truly instrumental books for me fiction almost always and there was this one book she gave me called the mists of avalon which doesn't when i describe it to you you're going to be like huh that book was really pivotal for you but it was it was a it was groundbreaking for its time it was a female centric retelling of the Arthurian legend from the perspective of the women. And I had never read anything like it before. It was the same story I knew, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, told from the perspective of Guinevere and Morgan Le Fay. And suddenly a story, you could call it history, you could call it, you know, myth, that I knew was completely different when told through the perspective of the women. And it opened my eyes to all these different voices, especially women's voices lurking in the past, hidden in the past. And initially, it started me on the path of becoming a history major. That's what I did in college. I thought maybe I'd become a professor, an archaeologist. But when I was in college, it was the first time that women in very large numbers were being encouraged to go to law school. And a lot of history majors, you probably know, end up in law school. And I had lots and lots of female friends who were ending up doing this. And it seemed a a clearer path. I didn't know exactly what I was going to do with the history degree. And I also felt fortunate that I was going to be part of this big wave, right, to have these opportunities. So I ended up going to law school. I went to Boston University Law School, and I did very well. And I ended up becoming, you know, getting amazing job offers and becoming a commercial litigator in New York City.
0: Were you writing during this time too? Were you, were you no, always working in the, oh, ne- you weren't? Oh.
1: Never. I, in fact, never, even had an aspiration to write a book. I was more interested in history, right? That was really my my thing. When I started practicing, however, I knew that that really wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. I liked the skills I was learning, the research, the writing, the advocacy, but I didn't love the work itself, the subject matters in particular. And so while I was still practicing, uh, for a couple of years, I would sneak out and go to like graduate classes and in, in history at NYU and Columbia, considering maybe going back and getting a PhD and just out of the clear blue, I had an idea for a story. I had never intended to write. I'd, I'd never taken a creative writing class. And of course, all my stories are about history and the, the fullness of history and rewriting back into the historical narrative the missing pieces, the missing voices. And what and was so- kind
0: of the, oh, I'm sorry, but what, no, I'm, sorry I'm, to interrupt. What, no, okay. the, what, was the, uh, what was the kind of catalyst? Was, was it something, because I, actually, I, I've heard you speak about this, I think, before. Um, yeah. There was, if some, someone said to you, at your firm, is, is that Yes.
1: Right? One of my best friends, who's still one of my best friends, we practiced together, Alana. Um, we were having dinner in a conference room, as we did most nights, because we were there for many, many hours every day. And she asked me whether or not there would be um, a case I would refuse to take on on moral grounds, even though my client had a really, really good legal position. And I did not have an answer to her question that bothered me, because I thought to myself, where's my line, right? What line will I not cross? And around, the, and this was a long time ago, this is in the 90s, I start in a journal that I was doing, you know, I was reading as part of, you know, CLE classes probably. I started to read about the very first few cases in which families of Holocaust victims were attempting to, re, uh, to recover artwork that had been stolen from their families during World War II by the Nazis and ended up in museums and auction houses. And and I just became fascinated. It was such an interest. It was a part of history I didn't know. It was a really fascinating kind of intersection of law and history and art, and art history, which was something else I was really interested in. And all of a sudden, I had an idea for a book, like fully fully formed. Um, and of course, the story was my very first published book, um, The Chrysalis, which was about, no surprise, a young female lawyer at a large New York City law firm who's asked to represent an art auction house in keeping a piece of artwork from the family who seeks to recover it. Um, It's artwork that had been stolen from the Nazis. And we now know about that, right? We know that that happens, but there was hardly anything about that when I first came up with the idea and when the book was first published. And I wrote that book over like an eight year period while I was practicing law. And it was kind of when I decided to make the pivot to pursue that, that, that I left being a lawyer.
0: And how did you get it done? It took you eight years, but, but how did you find the time as a corporate lawyer to, to write and, oh and to get gosh. that first novel It was done? very
1: challenging. That's why it took eight years. Now I know <laughs> all that and I didn't really know how to write a book. You know, as a commercial litigator, I would, I mean, I worked insane hours, but sometimes you would work like around the clock for weeks and then you'd be waiting for a response so you could reply, right, to a brief or whatever. And you'd be kind of in this holding pattern. They wouldn't want you to take on another case because they knew as soon as that brief came in, you would be flat out for another month. So I would have these little pockets a couple days here and there. I I would have a shorter workday so I could work at home in the evening. So that's why it took so long, you know, maybe over a vacation, I might do some writing. I wrote it in drips and drabs during not so copious free time, over a multi-year period. And when I was finally finished with it, I wouldn't say finished, as good as I could make it, given my capabilities at that time, I entered a program at NYU for people with completed manuscripts. And I worked with a professor one-on-one for six to eight months. i it, this is my best recollection.
0: What was the program?
1: I can't even remember, it was at NYU. This was a long, long time ago. And it was at that point that I thought, this is as good as I can make this book. And I was just fortunate that I connected with a literary agent who, who agreed that it had potential.
0: And after that book, did you then get, did you kind of um, give up your job in corporate law and and just said, I'm doing this full time now?
1: I'm- yeah, I mean, once I got a contract. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, um, but I've been fortunate. So ever since I got my first contract for The Chrysalis, I published a book every 12 to 18 months for the past like 15, 17 years.
0: Do you ever think about going back into law?
1: Never, never, ever. I love what I do. It's, you know, I wouldn't say that I ever regret my time as a lawyer. I don't. You know, I learned so much about my skills, about myself, about my passions during that process, and I learned the skills that I developed as a commercial litigator, I use every single day as doing what I do. You know, the way I describe it is this, you know, I, previously I would research, craft br- briefs or arguments on behalf of a client, right? And I do the same thing now. I research, it's history, historical research instead of legal research. I write novels as opposed to briefs or arguments. And I advocate, I advocate on behalf of my historical women. You know, I advocate to write them back into the historical narrative. So the skill sets are are so similar. And I'm, I'm so grateful for all the time that I spent as a lawyer. I feel like it was kind of a necessary step in, in what I do now.
0: Going back to the, the book, if people want to read this or listen to where where can they find the, the book?
1: Oh, literally anywhere, anyhow. You know, it's ebook, hard copy, audio. It's at literally every bookstore, every Audible platform. Because it's Barnes an Audible
0: exclusive, isn't it? It's an Audible exclusive. It is.
1: You can get it other places, though. But, right, um, right. Yeah, so it, it's it's anywhere. Your indie bookstores, wherever you like to shop. Indie, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Costco, Target, wherever you like to read, you can find it.
0: So how did the deal with Amazon come about, the exclusive Audible
1: audiobook? So, I mean, this is kind of a contract business side of things. Audible rights are a separate part of your publishing contract, some publishers choose to publish themselves. They have their own sort of audio division, audiobook division. Um, Sourcebooks, my publisher, um, did not have its own audiobook division, and so that's a right that we sell separately. And I, all of my um, Marie Benedict Sourcebooks books are published, audio published through Amazon, through Audible.
0: And and so what um, what are you working on now? What can your fans expect to yes. see from you next?
1: many many books um (laughs) i have another new book coming out in june on june 27th i think it is I have a, a co-written series of books um, with Victoria Christopher Murray. We published a book about two years ago, The Personal Librarian, and we have our second book out on June 27th, and it's called The First Ladies. It's the story between about the friendship between someone you know well, Eleanor Roosevelt, famous first lady, and someone that most people don't know as well, um, Mary McLeod Bethune. She was well-known in her day, 20s, 30s, and 40s. She was a 15th child in a family, firstborn free. She started a college, Bethune-Cookman in, in College in Florida, and she became one of the most well-known advocates for equality during that time period. She and Eleanor became like BFFs in a time period of segregation when Black and white people were not supposed to be friends, and they worked behind the scenes to advance the civil rights movement in ways that, I mean, blow your mind. I mean, these two women... They accomplished so much, and really, in their own way, formed the foundation for the civil rights movement. It was also really important to Victoria and I, you know, who wrote a book about race, a black and a white woman, during a period of unrest in our country. This book, in some ways, is autobiographical about our own friendship and the way in which—I mean, she's like a sister to me. We're extremely close. We have gotten to that place through difficult, frank conversations, the kind that we sort of imagine Eleanor and Mary have had. And so it was it was a really personal book on that level as well.
0: Well, congratulations on The Mitford Affair. Thank it was you a pleasure so talking to you today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: I'm Matt Reynolds, a legal affairs writer with the ABA Journal in Chicago. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed it, please rate us on your favorite podcasting app.